Jeff, what's the update on Camp Arete? Okay, good. Lord's answered prayer, and Jeff just said that uh, the prayer request has been answered in regard to the finances for Camp Arete, and that begins in about 10 days. And then uh, we need to pray for their safe travels and uh, that it will be an uh, opportunity for those that are going to be challenged by, by God's Word. And that if there are any there that are not saved, that they would get a clear understanding of the gospel. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to begin with prayer. As usual, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, uh, give you the opportunity to make sure that you are spiritually prepared to study the Word, which means that if we have unconfessed sin, that we need to confess sin to make sure that we are uh, enjoying, con that we are res our relationship with God, our walk with the Lord is restored, and that we can enjoy our relationship with Him uh, walking in fellowship by means of God the Holy Spirit. And um, we need to be in prayer for our nation. Tomorrow we celebrate our nation's birthday, the Declaration of Independence, and the signing of it, although it was not actually signed on July the 4th, it was um, approved on July 2nd. The Congress, Continental Congress voted to um, declare independence and it was uh, officially approved, the wording of the declaration was officially approved on July the 4th, but it wasn't signed. We don't know if anybody signed it, according to some reports, because the original is not uh, around anymore. But um, over the next month, leading up to August the 2nd, which was when most of the congressional delegates uh, signed it, and even then, not all of them eventually did. So we celebrate our nation's birthday on on the 4th of July, and we have continued now for uh, uh, over 230 years, and we need to pray for our nation because we are more divided than we have ever been since the American uh, War between the states. And this time, it is a much more profound rift because at that time, you still had people on either side who were, uh, who believed in God, believed in the authority of the Scripture. They just had different ways of interpreting it in, in one specific area in relation to slavery. But today, you have one whole party that has created a religion out of liberalism, and because they're not getting their way, they're throwing an incredible temper tantrum, and the hate and the vile that is spewed by so many on the left. Not that there haven't been those on the right, but among leaders in Congress, it is just appalling. We have not seen this kind of hostility 
since the 1859-1860 period and following. So we need to be in prayer for this nation. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. You are the God who is in control of history, moving history in the direction of the final culmination, which will demonstrate your righteousness and your justice and your love for mankind. Father, we know that ultimately all history is about you, and all history is about demonstrating that your plan is perfect, that your plan is good, and that your plan is righteous. Father, we pray for this nation. There have been so many nations over the years some that have risen and fallen. Some have been, at times, uh, very devoted to the truth of Scripture, and it has not been long before they have fragmented and fallen apart. And there have others that have been in rebellion against your word from their very inception. And Father, we pray for this nation. We pray for this president. We pray for our vice president. We pray for those in leadership at every level of government that you would protect them, that those who are being riled up by whichever side, uh, that they might be protected from uh, those who would seek to do them harm and who cannot sit down and have a civil conversation and civil discussion about the differences. Father, we need to have a restoration of peace in this nation, and that can only come on the basis of your word. And this nation was founded as a Christian nation to be a Christian nation on principles that were derived from your word. And we pray that there might be, that you might deal with us in grace, and that there might be a restoration and recovery of a love for you in this nation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I wanted to start off because tomorrow is the anniversary of our nation's birth and declaration of independence by bringing to your attention a, an event that occurred in Dallas. This is from uh, a report that came out on June the 21st, 2018. So this was a couple of weeks ago. And it is titled, Dallas Mayor Fights Church Over Billboard, stating, quote, America is a Christian nation. Now, you know, because you've been here and you have been with me as I have studied the history of our nation's founding again and again through the last um, 10 years or so, that this nation was founded to be a Christian nation. And I will show you some quotes from that uh, before we're done this, this evening. Uh, John Jay, who was, a, uh, I believe, the first Supreme Court justice, made that very clear in a statement that this country was founded as a Christian nation. Now, we have to understand what that means, but that doesn't mean that everybody was a believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that everybody had it right, that everybody was a Christian. But it meant that, that all of the values, the norms and standards, the thinking, the heritage, the ideals, the values that shaped 
the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution had their root and foundation in the Bible, and that's been demonstrated again and again, as I've stated from the pulpit. One of the most well-known studies is that of Donald Lutz, who at the time was professor of uh, political science at the University of Houston, did a study with graduate students to determine what was the source most commonly cited, quoted, or alluded to in the documents, diaries, um, speeches of the founding fathers. And he concluded two to one, the Bible more than anyone else. And number two, I believe, was John Locke. So it was uh, a well-established study. It's been published, and there's been much there. But that's his conclusion, is that the evidence points to the primary influence being being the Bible. In this article, the version I have was written by Tony uh, Tony, uh, Perkins, who's, I believe, with uh, uh, one of the Christian, I forget the exact name of the uh, organization. It's with uh, Family Research Council. There it is. And he writes, in Texas, you can advertise adult shops. It's church promotion they find offensive. That's the unbelievable predicament First Baptist Dallas finds itself in after it tried to buy a billboard for a series of upcoming sermons. What's offensive about a message on the Christian heritage of America? Plenty, according to the Dallas mayor. Freedom Sunday is June 24th for one of the largest churches in Dallas, but it won't be easy getting that news to locals. When First Baptist Dallas bought billboard space to promote it, owners of the sign company, Outfront Media, said it was inundated with complaints. Quote, Dallas Morning News and other news affiliates are doing stories on how it's offensive and bigoted, said a representative for Outfront. Following our lawyer's advice, we have have to take them down as soon as possible. Apparently, the idea that quote, America is a Christian nation, unquote, is not only news to local liberals, but offensive. And I would say that's because they have been brainwashed by a secular education system, and they are uh, mostly ignorant of any truth in American history. It has been so distorted and, um, and made to shape a liberal agenda. The writer goes on to say, with the help of the Dallas Morning News, Mayor Mike Rawlings launched a personal campaign to scrub the sign, insisting this is not the Christ I follow. My conclusion is the Christ that you follow isn't the Christ of the New Testament. Reminding people of America's Christian roots is, quote, not the Dallas I want to be, Rawlings told the newspaper. To say things that do not unite us but divide us. See, that shows a significant presupposition there that as far as his speech is concerned, we have to all unite and just do away with whatever we disagree with. But that only works on one side of the aisle, as we know. If you don't agree with the liberals, then they're going to throw a pity party and they're going to hurl the vilest hate speech they can against the president and against uh, members of Congress and uh, they are offensive, and they are vile, and they are profane, and they are degrading. And this does not help solve any problems. It does not contribute to uh, conversation, and it does not contribute 
to solutions. All it does is stir up a lot of anger and and resentment. So, but that's his thing: is we need to say things that unite us. But from his perspective, those things that unite us are only those things that fit the liberal worldview. He goes on to say, "I never heard those words." That, that voice come out of Christ, just the opposite. I was brought up to believe, be proud of yours, but do not diminish mine. How does the statement that America is a Christian nation diminish anyone? Only if you have a false view of Christianity. And so uh, Tony Perkins goes on to write that The liberal left continues to push their radical agenda against American values. The good news is that there is a solution. To appease the mayor, the church offered to add a question mark at the end. America is a Christian nation, question mark. But that was rejected as well. We were told that the title was anger-provoking rather than thought-provoking. Well, I learned a long time ago that when people respond in anger, it's because they're not getting their way has nothing to do with the factuality or the truth of something. They just don't get their way. And when people are, according to Romans 1, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, which is the default position of the unbeliever, then the reaction is going to be hostility. But this was not the view of the founding fathers. In fact, the verse I want to open with, we will get to our lesson, continuing our study of worship, but I want to point out a few things first. Proverbs 14.34, which was quoted by Abigail Adams, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. But if you don't have a biblical worldview, then you don't believe in sin. You believe that everything is equally good or equally bad, And therefore, uh, anything that you do would exalt a nation. It destroys a value system. And Proverbs 29.2 states, When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. Generally, that is true. Let me give you some quotes, some statements by those who signed the Declaration of Independence. Those were who were deeply involved in establishing the independence of the United States. And you can judge from their statements whether or not America was founded as a Christian nation. In a prayer, George Washington prayed, O eternal and everlasting God, direct my thoughts, words, and work. Wash away my sins in the immaculate blood of the Lamb and purge my heart by thy Holy Spirit. Daily frame me more and more in the likeness of thy Son, Jesus Christ, that living in thy fear and dying in thy favor, I may in thy appointed time obtain the resurrection of the justified unto eternal life. Bless, O Lord, the whole race of mankind, and let the world be filled with the knowledge of thee and thy Son, Jesus Christ." It's very clear that George Washington believed in God. Nobody can dispute that. There's controversy over uh, his depth of conviction of Christianity, and I've read uh, a lot on this. I can't say I'm a scholar or expert on it, but I believe that on the basis of some of his clear statements 
and we must always interpret the unclear by the clear, that he was a believer who understood the gospel of justification by faith alone. Samuel Adams, who was uh, someone who was quite a firebrand in his youth, later became uh, governor of Massachusetts, and he said regarding the 4th of July, we have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. That is God. He's talking about God, not the king of England. He reigns in heaven, and from the rising of the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. He also said the rights of the colonists as Christians may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. They advocated, the founding fathers of America advocated and promoted Bible reading and biblical teaching in the public schools. In fact, in 1782, Congress authorized a Bible to be printed for America. Up until that point, Bibles were printed in England and were imported. And in their statement, they said, the United States in Congress assembled recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States, a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of schools. And then they passed a resolution that said the Congress of the United States recommends and approves the Holy Bible for use in all schools. John Adams, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, as well as our first vice president, and later uh, he was the second uh, individual elected to the presidency. He died the same day Thomas Jefferson died on July 4th, both of them signers of the Declaration of Independence. He said, the Declaration of Independence laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. So how can anyone who is knowledgeable and educated and informed say that this is not a Christian nation? He went on to say the general principles on which the founders achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. Patrick Henry, who made a famous speech, concluding with the statement, give me liberty or give me death, said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since they happened to be there at the time, I think their firsthand testimony uh, gives us a pretty clear understanding of what their beliefs were. John Adams, to conclude with a quote from him, said that the 4th of July ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. What he means by that is it ought to be a time of worshiping God and giving thanks and praise to him for delivering us from a system of tyranny under the British Empire 
to a new government that would be founded upon biblical principles of liberty and freedom. And so to mark that, we're going to study the Word of God again tonight. So open your Bibles with me again to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to continue our study of worship. There's so much that I'm working on. I planned on doing five or six lessons on worship coming out of our study of of, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. But the more I'm reading, the more I'm studying, this is more than five or six. We're already at ten sessions on worship, and there may be ten more because it's so important to ground our understanding of worship. That's what we do every Sunday. Every week we go to worship service on Sunday morning. We worship on Tuesday night and Thursday night when we're here at Bible class. We should worship individually every single day as believers, and as such, we should study worship. But Sadly, many churches don't study worship for, I think, a couple of reasons. Reason number one is it's a difficult topic because worship brings together the threads of numerous doctrines and passages of Scripture. And therefore, to really drill down, and I'm not doing a drill down on worship, but to truly drill down on worship and think it through, you have to be in control of a lot of Old Testament theology and Old Testament practice and because that's the foundation for the New Testament. One of the things I often say when we celebrate the Lord's table, I talk about Passover and I talk about the Lord's table. Passover was the key communal community worship event in the Old Testament, celebrating God's deliverance of uh, of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It was their July 4th. It was their Independence Day as they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And when they observed Passover from that time on, they, it had two aspects to it. It looked back to the time when they were delivered by God in 1446 B.C., And it also looked forward to the time that the types and the shadows and the uh, elements of the Passover would be fulfilled in the promised Messiah. When that happened, and Jesus celebrated the Passover, that Independence Day celebration of Israel, when he celebrated the Passover with his disciples, it's the night before he went to the cross. And on the cross, we have another Independence Day, the ultimate Independence Day, because as Paul says in Galatians uh, 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ came to set us free. That's our ultimate freedom. That's why all freedom ultimately must reside on the biblical principles of spiritual freedom, because slave ultimately is, I mean, sin ultimately is the great enslaver. And so, like the Passover, like the Seder, The Lord's table looks back to what Christ did on the cross. We focus on his humanity. This is my body, which is given for you in the unleavened bread. And the cup, which is this is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. That is the foundation for salvation for all all generations. 
And Jesus said beforehand that he would not eat or drink until he came in his kingdom. So he clearly perceived the kingdom was future, and when he comes, there'll be the great wedding feast that occurs when he establishes his kingdom uh, in the future. It's not already here. It's not barely here. It's not almost here. It's not uh, any of those things that are said by theologians. It's not here yet. It's been postponed. We're in the church age. We are members of the body of Christ. That's something distinct. But we look back and we look forward. Worship itself is something that if we're worshiping God has both of those elements. We are looking back to what God did in creation. As we'll see this week and next week, creation is fundamental to worship. That's why it's such an attacked doctrine. And I'll go through some things related to creation as we go through this because it's truly foundational. Eden, what God created in Genesis 1 and 2, becomes the reference point for God's presence on earth. And that is depicted in the tabernacle, and then it is depicted in the temple. And today the temple is you and I. We are the temple. God, the Holy Spirit, has created a temple in us for the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And then there will be a future temple in the millennial kingdom, And then we're told that God the Father and God the Son, the Holy Spirit, will take up their dwelling on the earth in the new heavens and the earth, new earth, and there won't be a need for a temple anymore because the whole earth becomes that future temple. So we see this this thread runs all the way, all the way through history. And so we need to come to understand that. And it all boils down to the majesty of God and understanding truly who God is, when we understand who God is and what he has done, it's, it's like what we've been reading in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah sees God on his throne, he collapses before him. We see this same response other times when God allows the few to see him as they fall on their face. It is an overwhelming vision, and too often in our culture, the way we worship is to trivialize God and to use cliches again and again as if they communicate some deep, profound understanding of God. Last time, we looked at a couple of examples of hymns, contemporary choruses that have been written uh, based on Isaiah chapter 6. We looked at a very, very popular contemporary chorus called Open My Eyes, Lord, by Michael W. Smith. And we began by looking at the words, all hymns, anything a congregation sings should be thoroughly vetted, thoroughly evaluated. Uh, The content of the words, just evaluate them. They should have, if, if we're to do all things to the glory of God, then it shouldn't be cheap poetry. The words in a hymn should reflect a high aesthetic value, a high value uh, of, of beauty. So that the it's not just the content of the words, that's important. We saw that the content of his words fell short of biblical truth. And 
so that the ideas and the doctrines that undergird that particular contemporary chorus were, were pretty shallow. And then we looked at the aesthetics of his words just as poetry and saw that uh, there was no special beauty to his lyrics. Uh, there was nothing aesthetically um, uh, compelling about the language that he used. And then when we looked at the melody and added it, it of course, uh, we realized that the only thing that gave this song value was the the music, and for many people, it is that music that was uh, attractive because it was a beat. It was emotionally engaging. It drew people in, so that they were uh, tapping their toe or swaying, or they just got in line with the beat, and it creates a lot of pleasant emotions for some who enjoy that kind of music. But all of that is not the result of the words and the content. It's the result of the music that runs contrary, I would say, to the message uh, that the words were attempting to to communicate. So we looked at that uh, contemporary version of a way of talking about the holiness of God. We also looked at another one using the same language, Open My Eyes, which comes out of Psalm 119.8 which focuses, open my eyes that I may see great things in your word. The focus is understanding the word, not having a personal uh, experience with Jesus. And we looked at this other chorus that was first, first came out and on a Maranatha 8-track uh, tape. Some of you have no idea what an 8-track tape was. came out on an 8-track tape. I had one back in about 1974. Open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus. Think about these words. I didn't make all my comments last week. Open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch him and say that I love him. Open my ears, Lord, and help me to listen. Open my ears, Lord, I want to see Jesus. We need to ask three questions. What does this say about Jesus? How does it, what do we learn about the Jesus in this hymn? Do we know who this Jesus is? Does it say anything about his person or his work? Who is he? And why should we want to see him? Uh, Knowing that I am a little bit facetious, how do we know that this isn't some lyric written by a pseudo-parent separated from a child entering the country illegally and the child's name is Jesus? And they are looking for this lost child. See, there's nothing there to distinguish it because it means nothing. It is vacuous. It is insipid. It is empty of all meaning. All you have here is just wallowing in personal emotion about someone called Jesus. And I have said for 40 years as a pastor that the problem with most Christians, like the mayor of Dallas, I'm assuming he's, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he's a Christian, is they've created in their own imagination a false god they've labeled Jesus, and that's whom they're worshiping. And this is what happens in a lot of congregations. So we went through that last time. We looked at some and compared those lyrics to some great lyrics of great hymns that have lasted for centuries and saw that the difference in terms of doctrinal content, 
information about Jesus, information about salvation is profound. So what I want to do today before we go forward with our conclusion of Isaiah 6 is just some a reminder of some basic things that we should think about when we think about worship and music. First of all, there's this big debate that's been going on for at least 30 years, probably 40 years, uh, called sometimes called the worship wars over, and usually it's framed wrong. Like most debates, you have to be careful how the topic is, is, is uh, sh- shaped, and you will find that many people who haven't read much about it or thought profoundly about it have bought into some of the presuppositions that have been set forth about this debate. It's not about old versus new, traditional versus contemporary. It's about fulfilling biblical principles for worship and music. It's not about saying all this new music is bad. Because new there is have been things written in recent years that are chronologically new that are rejected by the contemporary uh, worship uh, philosophers. So I want to go over some of these popular fallacies. You'll often find, especially in some older literature, and I'm talking about some of the things that were written back in the 60s, Uh, some things that were said where they were really focusing on non-issues. And as a result of their focusing on non-issues, it sent the argument, sent the discussion in a wrong direction. It's not about the beat. It's not about syncopation. There are some who have said that all syncopation is inherently evil. That's just not true. Okay, it's not about the beat. It's not about syncopation. And so for those who want to caricature the uh, side that is viewed as traditional, these are easy targets, low-hanging fruit, because it's basically uh, a a false argument. It's not about how fast or how slow the music is. It's not about when it was written. Some people have said, well, you go to a church where they won't sing anything written after about 1930. And that's just not true. There are some good things that have written. The problem is that as you advance through the 20th century, there's fewer and fewer good things that are written that meet a biblical standard. Fifth, it's not about the theological associations of the writer. Charles Wesley wrote hundreds of hymns, and some of them are absolutely outstanding, even though as an early Methodist, he did not believe in eternal security, and he had some other things that we would quibble about in his theology. They are not present in his hymns, although one of my favorite hymns, And Can It Be?, I can't remember now if that was written by him or his brother, but it doesn't matter. There's a couple of lines in there that need a little tweaking, which we have done in our hymnal, so that that, the weak theology has been straightened out. Sixth, it's not about how it makes me feel. Don't confuse feelings with worship. Don't confuse, because you can come in, to church anywhere, anytime, 
And depending on a lot of factors going on in your life, you may feel crummy when you get there. You may feel crummy when you leave. You may have gone out and had a wonderful party the night before and you're hung over from 8 o'clock to 2 o'clock the next day. And it's not about how you feel. It's about God. It's always theocentric. It's always about God. And seventh, and I overheard a conversation not long ago where I thought this is what they were talking about. I just wanted to put this in here. It's not about which instruments are used. It's not about whether an organ is used or a piano is used or a guitar is used or a lyre is used or a tambourine are used. You had some of these instruments were uh, present at the time that David wrote and that the choir sang in the temple. It's not about what kind of instrument is used, and that's also been often portrayed as, well, you just don't want to have church unless you have a piano or an organ, and that's not necessarily so. What are the answers? First of all, it is about the worldview of the music. Music always represents a philosophical system, whether it is the the music of the blues and jazz that came out of a cultural context that reflects a worldview. You look at older uh, music that is sometimes referred to as just classical music, that came out of a culture. You look at Bach, what was the culture that informed Bach? It was a theocentric Christian Lutheran culture that informed Bach. You know, that is important to take those things uh, into account. Uh, it's about the worldview of the music. Plato said, if you want to change a culture, change the music. That's how influential music is. You can change the music, and it will change the culture. The fact is, it's really a, a, a circle, because as you change the worldview, it will change the music. And for for example, if you go back to the, and I've done this before in a series that starts around Lesson 99 in Revelation, where I went through a lot of uh, history and music, but if you look at the early church period, you go to the period from about 200, 300 to about 600 or 700, it was dominated by the idealism of Platonism and Neoplatonism. And as a result... Uh, the music is very ephemeral. The idea in, in Platonism is that only the ideal has value, not the concrete. And so if you look at the art of that period, it's two-dimensional. Everybody, nobody looks, none of the art, you think about a Byzantine icon uh, and maybe an icon in a Greek Orthodox church, it's very two-dimensional. It's not a real person. And the music is the same way. You listen to Byzantine chants, and they're very ethereal. They, um, they're taking you to this ideal world. It's not concrete. But then by the time you get into the middle of the Middle Ages and later Middle Ages when Aristotle is discovered, you have a shift from idealism to realism, and the music shifts and the art shifts and all of the aesthetic disciplines, uh, drama, literature, everything shifts. And all of a sudden with Aristotle, the emphasis is on uh, the earthy, what's here and now. 
for Plato, the body, anything material was evil, so therefore the concrete is evil, but for Aristotle, the body, uh, the physical world is all, is all good. And so there's a total shift in the worldview from that which is ideal to that which is uh, real. That changes art. It changes music. So all music, all art, all literature reflects the worldview of the artist, whether they are a playwright or a poet or novelist or whether they are an artist, whatever. And so music as music reflects a worldview. It is about the content of the lyrics. So it's about the worldview of the music, and it's about the content of the lyrics. What is being said? How is it being said? That how it's being said brings in the 11th point, that it's about the beauty and the aesthetics of the song. When God created, he created a a universe and an earth and a garden and Eden and a garden in Eden that was beautiful. It was designed down to uh, the most minute particles of an atom, uh, submolecular particles. Everything has an incredible design that is not only functional, but is beautiful. So when we come to art, whether it's visual art or whether it is music, it should reflect those values that God built into his creation. So number 12, it is about the correct form for expressing the content. So you can have hymns that are extolling the holiness and majesty of God, and the music needs to conform to that message, not override the message. And I think that Uh, When I gave the example of Michael Smith's song last week, Open My Eyes, uh, Lord, the the other song, that when I played the music, it just overrode whatever the words were. In fact, in some cases, you couldn't hear the words. And uh, sadly, there are many churches, I think, who self-condemn today because they don't know that they do. But when you go into some of these churches, the music is so loud that you can't hear the congregation sing even if they were. Because a lot of them don't sing anymore because they really can't follow the melody line of the chorus. So they're just watching entertainment. And recently I was at a church with the whole worship uh, band up there, and it was all about them. You could tell just from the way they were playing and they were uh, they were into themselves and their own uh, entertainment of the of the audience. So the form of the music needs to be in the background. In fact, last week I got a text message from someone who's a regular listener um, and is an in, informed in theology. I believe he's taught at Tyndale Seminary before, but he made a comment about a do- couple of, do- actually it relates to a couple of doctrinal churches. He was just talking about one, that back in the 80s and the 90s, they were playing all of this contemporary music from the time, and he was a drummer, and he said, it, we were so loud, and we were all into our music, and it was so loud that you could never hear the congregation uh, sing, even if they did. So just because it's a church that emphasizes sound doctrine and teaching doesn't mean they understand what that means. 
And so this was a very sad example of that. And I've seen that in some other churches because the, pe- the pressure from the culture is to conform to what these churches are doing. And the message that you keep hearing is if you keep singing traditionally you know, traditional hymns or biblical, biblically sound hymns. If you don't shift to contemporary Christian worship, then you won't attract anybody. Well, there's a fallacy there, and the fallacy is is that we would have more effective evangelism if we changed our methodology. And that's just fallacious on, on any number of, of levels. It is God ultimately who is the sovereign executive of of evangelism and the way that Paul approaching Paul did not go out uh, and say wait a minute we're going to wait a year before we go to Lystra and Iconium and we're going to make sure we have a complete demographic study we want to make sure we understand what kind of music that the uh, young people there like and uh, we need to understand what they're doing when they go to uh, worship at the pagan temples because we don't want to jolt them too much with something that is contrary or different or strange to what they're doing all the time. Do you think he did that? Well, when he walked into the synagogue and he taught a little bit, they kicked him out. He wasn't too concerned about conforming his message and his method to that which was culturally comfortable. And yet that's what drives church growth today. So we have to have forms that, the music forms that communicate the message of the words. And then last, it's about glorifying God through utilizing our very best creativity to produce art that reflects our creator. We are created in his image and likeness, and one of the ways that we demonstrate that is through our artistic creativity. That is what God did in the six days of creation. And we're going to learn a lot about the six days of creation, the seventh day of rest as we go forward. There's a wonderful book, short book, if you're interested in reading something that is engaging and insightful. It is by David Gordon called Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, How Pop Culture Rewrote the Hymnal. And he has some great insights in there. And he says, today we have a generation that not only think it is preferable to only sing songs written by their generation, that's the new, new song fallacy, to pre- uh, think it is preferable to only sing songs written by their generation, but that they must only sing songs written by their generation. And I've had a conversation with Randy Price, who's a professor at Liberty Liberty University, uh, but within the last year, and he commented, he said, Robbie, do you realize that the students coming in to Liberty now have never sung A Mighty Fortress Is Our God? They've probably never heard it. They've never sung um, Amazing Grace. They may have heard it. They've never sung many of the traditionally biblically solid hymns. They've never sung a hymn in their life. Indeed, Gordon goes on to say, when people talk about contemporary music, they are not, in fact, referring to the date of the composition. 
The people who promote contemporary music, for instance, are not promoting the hymns of a 20th century hymn writer such as E. Margaret Clarkson. And there's a few other people who are writing hymns. A hymn is an art form, a music form, uh, a genre. And the contemporary music people just don't like hymns. And so they never promote uh, it's even a contemporary. Uh, Clarkson died in 2008. Uh, he says, whose hymns, though recently written, do not sound as though they were recently written, nor are they promoting the, for, uh, nor are they, that is, the contemporary Christian worship crowd, promoting the 14 hymns co-written by the late James Montgomery Boyce, who died in 2000, and Paul Jones. James Montgomery Boyce was the pastor for many years. He reformed lordship, but he was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Uh, very, very well-known uh, expositor of scripture and theologian, although I would not agree with him on many of those areas. David Wells, now this guy's brilliant. John, you need to read David Wells. He's just absolutely brilliant. He is a great critique of postmodernism in the church, of multiculturalism in the church, and its impact on contemporary Christianity. He is the distinct... I tried to get him to come a few years ago as a uh, speaker for our Chafer Conference, but he said he's too old to travel anymore. He was the distinguished research professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He analyzed several uh, contemporary chorus books uh, several years ago and traditional hymn books. So what he's doing is let's evaluate the contemporary music and the traditional hymns and see what we discover. His conclusions are almost 65% of all choruses had no doctrinal development or content whatsoever. Two-thirds of them had no doctrinal content or development. That's like the one I pointed out earlier, open my eyes, I want to see Jesus, or open our eyes, I want to see Jesus. He says it's almost impossible to find a hymn with no doctrinal development or content. That's a huge contrast. All hymns have doctrinal development and content, even though some may not be the best, they do have it. And his study, I note, did not focus on the accuracy of the doctrine, only the presence of doctrinal development. So that in and of itself is a tremendous indictment of the entire contemporary Christian worship industry. Second, it's not only about the words. See, a lot of people can say, well, I can understand what you're saying about the words, but isn't music neutral? There's nothing in this earth since the fall of Adam that hasn't been touched and corrupted by the fall. Every discipline, every area of human thought, every value has been affected by sin including music. You can't say, well, music is neutral, which is what they say. Music is neutral. It doesn't matter. We'll just use whatever it takes to communicate to this culture. And there's just a a huge philosophical fallacy there. Another fallacy is the fallacy of the new song. What they'll use for justification is that, that their claim is every generation has their own style. No, it doesn't. Never has. Not every generation 
And their claim is that every generation, therefore, sings its own music. No, it hasn't. That's just false. They, they're, this generation has done something that no previous generation has done, and that is they have thrown away every piece of music that was ever written before their generation. That's the height of arrogance. That's saying that all of those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hymns written by tens of thousands of hymn writers over 1,900 years of Christianity don't speak to us. Maybe the problem is they're listening for the wrong thing. Maybe they're not tuned to the truth. Maybe they just want something that will stimulate them emotionally uh, and then they confuse that with spirituality. We have passages that talk about singing a new song. Psalm 33.3 says, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Psalm 40, verse 3, He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Psalm 96.1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord in all the earth. This is not talking about a new kind of music. As you go through life, you encounter circumstances and situations, some of which cause you to rejoice greatly and deeply in God. And if you are inclined as a poet, then you will write exquisite lyrics. Uh, Horatio Spafford wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, as he's on the spot in the ocean where his four daughters were drowned. That grows out of his experience. It was a new song. It's not a new kind of music. It was a new song because there was a new situation. And God provided in that new situation. And that's what you see as you study through the Psalms is there were new instances where God intervened in someone's life and they are praising God, thanking God, or they have encountered some difficulty and now they are writing a new hymn to reflect that new situation. But it's not a new style of music. It's not a new category of music. It is a new song of the same category and type that had preceded it. So the fallacy is that new song means a new generation style of music that speaks to it. Each generation has a different twist on the dominant worldview. And a new, new songs will come that are popular. We never had pop music before about 1900. Pop music is something that came in as a result of record players and radio and things of that nature. Before that, there was just music. Often we call it classical music, but it was music. There were folk songs, different things like that, but not the category of pop music like we have today. Third point is that everything in God's creation should emphasize his centrality significance and importance it's all about god that's what the word glory means glory emphasizes the centrality and the and the importance of god that without him there is nothing there's no meaning there's no value there's nothing in life what we have in a biblical worldview is God is viewed as the creator, which is not a secondary doctrine. It's fundamental to all worship. And what we'll see 
uh, next time when we finally get to talking about God as creator is that that the the first act of angelic creation that uh, angelic worship that we see is described in Job 38 4 through 7 and the angels are worshiping and singing and praising God for his creation and we see it again in Revelation chapter 4 where the 24 elders who are the uh, resurrected raptured and rewarded church age believers are praising God for the works that he has made and so this is one of two. I, I find that almost all hymns rotate on two axes. Number one, it's God as creator and all that he has made. And number two is redemption. Though, those two. And, and grace fits in with redemption. So we have God as a creator. He is totally distinct, totally other from his creation. And he created a finite universe. He created matter and energy and light and vegetation and animals, man. Uh, he defines who man is. He defines man's purpose, defines his social, uh, social absolutes. Marriage and family, law and politics are all embedded within the society, the social aspect of, of man. And his aesthetics, and historically evangelicals have been very weak in developing a biblical view and theology of beauty. So aesthetics affects art, music, and literature. Truth and beauty, if we believe what the Bible teaches about God being the only eternal, then in the Godhead reside the absolutes of truth and beauty. Truth is not relative. Beauty is not relative. It has its archetype in the person of God. And God, therefore, speaks to everything he creates. He created music. It's not independent or neutral. And either he speaks to everything he creates, including music, or he speaks to nothing he creates. And that's the problem. If you have an impotent God who doesn't really engage his creation or know God at all, then there's nothing to speak to to define uh, that which is created. Words we use that express aesthetic excellence are words like glorious, magnificent, majestic, splendid, beautiful, excellent. Whenever we use those words, they're always appealing to a value, a value always relates to something that is right or wrong. So whenever we listen to music, we say, that's, that's wonderful music. Where does that value come from? It either comes from God or it comes from the, his creatures. Those are the only two options. So we have to have standards that reflect God's character. So... In terms of suggested standards, I have four. First of all, the right question is not, is there something wrong with this music? The right question is, does this music bring glory to God? We're not out there to pick apart every little thing that is said and every little attempt, but we're there to, to look for the best and not that which is mediocre or insipid or just get by. Now, on the one hand, we have to recognize that there that there's going to be a difference in the kind of a worship service that can be produced by a church of 2,000 people 
with a lot of talent and a lot of ability and a lot of pomp and circumstance in a church of a hundred. But the quality needs to be kept at as high a level as a local church can develop. In the, what, we're, what we'll see in our study of the Old Testament is when you have these statements in the Psalms about we were glad to come into the house of the Lord, there's a context to that. You can't transfer that statement to the church to, or to a local church. What they were saying was that this is, it's Passover, it's Pentecost, it is, um, it, it, it is Yom, um, not Yom Kippur, it is Rosh Hashanah, it is the, it's the new year. It is a time when God has called us to come to a central worship spot in Jerusalem to worship him with all of the pomp and circumstance that was present at those occasions. They were times in the spring, times in the fall, related to planting, related to harvest. When they've worked hard, they've been diligent, they brought in the harvest, and now the work is done, and they can take a couple of weeks off and go to Jerusalem and rejoice in God's blessing. We can't really grasp that in our type of urban church age environment. And so the music level they they heard choirs and heard music like they never heard back in little bethlehem or nazareth or hebron but that doesn't mean that what was produced there was inferior it just didn't have that extra level of quality that you could produce in jerusalem so the question isn't there's something wrong with it let's not do it the question is can we do better does this music do these words glorify God? Are they theocentric? Is my soul drawn to God and his greatness and his majesty as a result of what I am singing? Second, does the song reflect the creative acts of God? When we think about God's creation, there's planning, it's orderly, it is technically excellent, it promoted positive morality and it was purposeful. All of those things, I'm sure you can think of uh, many other uh, characteristics, but that should come across in our, in our music. It can display simplicity without being simplistic. It can uh, also, at the same time, demonstrate complexity. This is what's called unity and diversity in the mix of the harmony and all present in, uh, in the music. And the music has proportionality. It has symmetry and balance, and it moves towards a resolution. This is all part of good music. And then a fourth is negatives. It can be unstructured. If it is designed for congregational singing, then it should be easy for a congregation to sing. That's really just overlooked. I've I've been to many, many churches, many, many contemporary services over the years. It's not like I live in a vacuum. I have no clue what they're saying, how they're saying. If they didn't put the words up on a screen, I'd have no idea what the words really were. But I can't sing the tunes. You know, I don't hear them enough, but but you just listen to the, the, the most hymns are, a lot of hymns are marches, uh, they're waltzes, they're, they're tunes and melodies that can be easily learned. 
And so that violates the whole principle of corporate worship if the people can't really learn it and sing it. Um, It's nice to be spontaneous, but often spontaneity falls flat. It comes across as disorganized and shallow. Uh, We don't want it to be simplistic or trivial or banal, trendy or mediocre. And that's what we have in most churches, following the same trends. So that gives us something to think about and to use as a starting point. There are several books. One I would recommend, along with the one on Why Johnny Can't Sing, is a book by Scott Annual, who spoke at our Chafer Conference a few years ago called Worship in Song. And he is quite insightful. Now he's got his Ph.D. from uh, um, Southwestern Baptist Seminary, and is teaching in uh, their music and worship department there. So those are good, excellent sources. There are many, many others that have come out, and uh, you would think that there's been no criticism of the contemporary Christian worship scene, and there's been a host of really well-informed, educated, uh, musically sound, uh, musically educated. I've got one book, and I can't read half of it because I'm just not that musically educated even though I have a pretty decent music background and education so but he gets into a lot of music theory where I'm weak on musicology and music theory but it's just outstanding stuff and yet uh, it doesn't attract the masses and so you have the purveyors of false teaching and shallow teaching who it's all about the numbers not about creating believers and disciples for Jesus. Father, thank you for this time to look at these things, think through uh, your word, the implications of your word, that we may worship you, for you are beyond our comprehension. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, your ways are not our ways, but you have lowered yourself in such a way that you can communicate to us And you have loved us in such a way that you sent your only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, Father, for that, we worship you, we honor you, we glorify you. We want to make you the center of our lives, and that is our service of worship. Pray that we might never grow lax in our understanding of our divine calling. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.